Welcome to Financial Repression Authority's Roundtable Insight, where the best fund managers, economists, and industry leaders discuss the key investment issues and challenges in the current macroeconomic environment. Hi, welcome to FRA's Roundtable Insight. This is host Richard Benulli. Today is January 17th. We have today Peter Bookfar and Ira Harris. Peter is the Chief Investment Officer for the Bleakley Financial Group and Advisory. He also has a newsletter product called The Book Report, B-O-O-C-K report.com. It offers great macroeconomic insight and perspective with lots of updates on economic indicators. And Ira is independent trader, hedge fund manager, and global macro consultant, trading foreign currencies, equities, bonds, and commodities for over 40 years. He was also CME director from 1997 to 2003, and also a stint most recently. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Uh, thought we'd begin, uh, Peter, with your macro view on the economy and the financial markets. Uh, all right, let's start with uh, the economy, which is um, so many cross currents, it's really hard to uh, even pin down any one particular theme uh there seems like there's multiple themes uh at least with the u.s economy manufacturing is deeply in a recession and basically has been for uh the last year and a half plus uh the housing market is sort of upside down you have the existing home market which is seeing the slowest pace of sales in decades uh we're near it and uh on the other hand you have new builds uh doing better but those new builds are very concentrated on the Big builders that have the capital to to build. The smaller builders have less. Consumer spending is even mixed. Uh, we did get good retail sales today as we speak, uh, but you just have to wonder uh, the sustainability and how much is related to buy now, pay later, how much was due to uh, taking on credit card debt. Uh, we saw a New York Fed household spending survey and uh, spending intentions or expectations for spending or at the slowest pace since 2020. So uh, a lot of moving pieces. We have Europe that is at best not growing. China is obviously dealing with its own uh, stress in their residential real estate market and also experiencing the global downturn in manufacturing and uh, a cautious consumer. Uh, so I think net-net, it's uh, very much a mixed bag. And I still think that the um, very sharp rise in interest rates that we saw um, up until this year or late last year, uh, still has a ways to go in sort of working its way through the economy and affecting those that have debt coming due. Uh, there's about $750 billion of corporate bonds that come due this year. There's about a half a trillion dollars of, in, uh, of real estate loans that come due this year. Uh, and that's just in the US. I mean, just the amount of loans that are coming due globally that are going to be impacted by this higher rate environment. And I think bottom line is, is that we're not going back to uh, the salad days of zero rates and one to two percent inflation uh, that we saw. Uh, I still think it's going to be a, a choppy environment for both the economy and markets. And you take a step back in, in terms of the stock market, uh, we've basically made no progress over the last couple of years. As uh, the bad year in 2022, uh, we recaptured most of it in 2023, but uh, to no progress. And that's in the S&P. Broader markets are, are still below where they were as we entered 2022. Uh, so uh, it, it, it's it's very tricky out there, uh, to say the least. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very interesting insight. Uh, do you align with this view, Ira? What are your thoughts? I do. And it is tsunami tricky. I mean, Peter really does, as always, every day he goes and goes and digs through the, the data that we see to put this together. And I'm really much more top down and really top down. Well, Peter's certainly top down too, but he is better at the granular work than, than I would ever hope to be. Um, but there, there are there are a lot of little, they're more than a little tricky. And again, you see it as much in Fed speak. I, you know, I, I have my, a lot of my work now set to the day of December 13th as to where we are in time and space. And that was, of course, during uh, Powell's uh, press conference, uh, which was, I don't care how, Powell set this market up to be very, very dovish and expect the so-called, so uh, well, he didn't tell them, to, didn't tell the market, oh, we're gonna probably cut six times. But the, the dot plots were a little bit soft and he softened it again, uh, and we've I talked about this last week with Dr. Faber, is that there was no back off. And usually we talk about the ebb and flow during the press conferences. December 13th, the market knew what it heard because there was no correction. The S&Ps just rallied, rallied, rallied the whole day, the rest of the day, the whole afternoon. The gold rallied, the, the, uh, dollar, the currencies rallied, the dollar slipped. The bonds rally. There was never any correction, so the market knew what it had heard. And then, of course, the Fed speak and the what I would call mostly gibberish, but it does move the markets because again, we live in a world of algo headline readers, and the headlines are crafted to move markets, and the markets do move because there's enough money dedicated to that type of trade, that high frequency algo driven trade. Um, uh, key, that are keyworded and the, and the keywords find themselves. So you get the volatility and I'm not crying about this. It's all it's done is teach me to be a more patient trader and provide better opportunities. I get great entry points that I never would have seen even during the times of, of the craziness of the pits. So it just, you know, it's like everything else you adapt to it, but the fed speak. And then I, I read, now I listened to Waller's speech yesterday at Brookings live. And I thought it was pretty dovish. Yeah, it wasn't six cuts, but you know, he talked about cutting and the two and his two percent target. Well, you know, and then of course he got to our start. I will say this that I think every journalist in the land who pretends that they're a financial journalist should listen to it because David Vessel uh actually asked some some really good questions and he almost got he almost got waller to talk about fiscal policy and waller pulled himself back i go oh my god he's going down that rabbit hole pulled himself back uh but one thing that made me very dovish was it must have been four or five times waller in answering questions and his answers were very I thought really good in, in that they provided actual information. Four or five times he talked, in his opinion, financial conditions were still tight. Now, that flew in the face of everything we've heard from all Fed people since 
since Powell's press conference, because everybody's talked about loosening financial conditions. And if I have to look at the Goldman Sachs financial index, financial conditions one more time, um, I've had enough of it. But but that really caught my ear. Why is he saying that everybody else is talking about loosening financial conditions? And he was adamant that, because he said it, he reiterated four or five times. So these are the, I, I think, the stumbling blocks that are placed in, the, in not in my way, because uh, I'm going to adjust. I'm a trader, and I will adjust. But the market has, they, and you see it, this this whole action, it's not because of what's, I, I would argue vehemently, now you could say it's ancillary because of what's going on in the Gulf of Aden and, of course, the Red Sea, and with the Houthis. Uh, this is all interest rate base, and it's really finding itself in the two-year, because the two-year has had, since Martin, since last Friday, I would say a pretty sizable correction. But all we're back down to is in where it was uh, during Powell's press conference. So uh, I will stop. I don't have. Well, just a, a couple things to that. Uh, I, I do think the Fed now needs to define how they define financial conditions. Is it the S&P 500? Is it credit spreads? Is it, Because if, if it was those, well, we've had dramatic easing. If it's just the cost of capital, then that's just like them saying, okay, higher rates means we're tight, lower rates remain, means we're easy. Uh, there's got to be something more sophisticated, and, and Waller needs to, to, to give some more color to what he defines as financial conditions. Now, interesting, you mentioned Powell. Um, I think it was two days later when John Williams went on CNBC, uh, and, and, and I titled my note, Clean Up on Aisle 5, yes. uh, that he he tried to, I guess, pull back. Because, you know, the, the Fed's got, you know, Jay Powell has, you know, visions of the 1970s and doesn't want to give up this inflation fight because how discreditable it'll be if they start slashing interest rates and the dollar tanks and oil goes to 100 and inflation spikes again. Uh, so I think that, the, the markets are just used to the usual typical Fed playbook of, okay, economy slows, starts slashing interest rates. But I think we've heard from a variety of Fed speakers, not just Williams cleaning up, but just recently Bostic and some others uh, pulling the markets back from their expectations of six. But, you know, the market's only grudgingly listening. Uh, even as of, of, of last night's close, Tuesday, being, that being Tuesday the 16th, uh, you know, we, 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 we priced in 140 basis points of cuts instead of 160 the week before. That's only really one cut, but still we're pricing in fifth, five cuts and then, you know, odds of a sixth. That's much different than the three. Either way, I think we're playing a game of sort of semantics here with the rate cuts because don't, whether the Fed funds is at four, four and a quarter, four and a half, it's still a far cry from zero. And while that's off the five and a half percent, this is a much different interest rate environment than what the economy and many of the markets had been used to in in the 15 years prior to 2022. And I think that is the most important big picture takeaway is don't just say, okay, the Fed's going to cut, let's get all excited. It's to what extent? Because even if the Fed funds is at 4%, maybe the long end actually yields go higher. Actually, I think that's going to be the case. So I don't think there's going to be rate relief across the yield curve. And 
a high rate environment means that your cost of capital is still much more elevated than when it was pre-2022. Interesting. And uh, what are your thoughts on how inflation plays out for this year, 2024? Peter. So when you when you look at the history of inflation, uh, and, and whether it's the U.S. or other countries, you know, outside of the hyperinflation that we've seen in Argentina, Venezuela, Turkey, for example, but just historical bouts of cyclical inflation, it spikes and then it comes down. And the amount of people spiking the football on the come down is quite amazing to me because many of them didn't even see, you know, the the spike that that, that preceded this. To me, the key question for the markets the rates market, the stock market, the economy, Fed policy, is after this fallback in inflation, is where does inflation settle out at? Are we just going to go back to 1% to 2%, which allowed the Fed to do whatever they wanted in terms of policy, and they can cut rates uh, well below uh, where they, they would be otherwise? Or did something structural change here? And when it comes to breaking out inflation between services and goods, Services inflation was never transitory. Services inflation in the 20 years leading to COVID rose 2.8% year over year, year, X services. I'm sorry, X energy, services X energy. It was goods prices, core goods prices that averaged zero. So in this inflation spike, you, you, you have a, a pickup in services inflation, mostly because of rents, and then you get the spike in goods prices. Interestingly, goods prices now are back to zero on a year over year basis, while services prices... Uh, or sort of still double its pre-COVID trend, but that should moderate when, with as rents flow their way through. But then on the other side, you can say, well, goods prices are not going to settle out at zero, again, the pre-COVID trend, because of structural things. And now you have higher transportation costs, which have basically doubled over the past couple of weeks, and we'll see how that filters into uh, the economy. And that maybe we're just not going back to the regular just-in-time inventory that so many got used to, and that China is not going to be able to flood the world with cheap stuff anymore because now you have like Europe and the U.S. that don't want their cheap stuff. You know, take the, the China's EV business, which is one of the wonders of the world where they're able uh, to pro uh, produce cheaper EVs in the rest of the world, which would actually be beneficial to many people in the world. But the EU is fighting it back against Chinese uh, EV uh, imports, as is the U.S. So it's like, no, we don't want cheap stuff. We want to pay up for stuff because we want to defend our manufacturing base. So I just don't think that, again, after this come down in inflation, and maybe we see a two-handle, maybe we even see a one-handle by the end of the year in inflation. I just don't think it stays here. And the market's going to celebrate this deceleration in inflation, as they should. But I don't think that um, it necessarily means it's going to stay there. And I think that people just assume that inflation is falling and it's going to stay down. And I argue that um, maybe it will, but maybe it won't. And I think the Fed is more focused right now on having it stay down, not just fall down. What, what, what could those factors be that maybe bring inflation back up? What are your thoughts on like Suez Canal, Panama Canal type of potential supply chain uh, issues? Well, yeah, and, I just touched upon mm -hmm. the good side and, and certainly the transportation challenge uh, could exacerbate that. Also, you know, we've had this massive amount of inventory destocking over the past, call it six months. Uh, and I say six months because it was really towards the end of last summer when 
retailers started to get serious with with trimming their inventory levels, particularly going into the holidays. So at some point, you're going to get an inventory restock. And that's going to lead to a pickup in pricing. Uh, you're already beginning to hear stories about uh, supply shortages because of what's going on in the Red Sea. Uh, Tesla talked about in their German factory not being able to get stuff. So I see the the, the uh, big possibility of goods prices reaccelerating again. Not to the not to the extent that we saw during COVID, but remember, as I said, core goods prices averaged zero in the 20 years leading into COVID. All you need is goods prices to rise two to three percent a year, and you have a higher rate of inflation than what we've become accustomed to. Now, on the flip side, services inflation is going to decelerate because of of slower rents, but wage gains are still pretty good. So that would be somewhat of an offset. Uh, but I just don't think that we can rest easy with inflation on a sustainable basis. Sustainable is the key word here, because even the Fed members have talked about it. It's not just the rise in inflation, the fall in inflation. It's the sustainability of inflation. Where does it settle out at? And Bostic added two words to that over the weekend. who's was a voting member talking, talking about inflation slowing surely and firmly. So sustainably, surely and firmly are three important words here when we analyze the big picture uh, inflation story and how the Fed is going to calibrate monetary policy in response to that. Mm -hmm. Great points. Yeah, your thoughts, Ira? Yeah, these are great points. And it's, uh, yeah. this is what the discussion ought to be, uh, certainly about. Um, but it gets us, and the Fed is now trying to, although Waller actually brought it up yesterday towards the latter part of his speech, and we're back to our star. Well, when we start talking about our star, if you have that rate falling to two, you know, first of all, you know, even Paul Volcker, I was opposed to a 2% inflation target. So, uh, because he says, if you miss it by low by one tenth or two tenths, what's the difference? That should not direct what your policy, you know, you have to read what is going into that. Um, so he was, he was never a fan of this. In fact, he wrote that piece, wonderful piece for Bloomberg, I think in 2017 on his trip to New Zealand, where we had the birth of uh, the idea of inflation targets back in the 1980s with Don Brash. But this is where it puts us. So if you're at 5%, and even if your inflation rate really, as Peter talks about, let, let's say it stalls out at 2.6, 2.7. Well, your overnight real yield is over 2%. So even though you, you paint yourself in the corner of this target, but you have latitude on a real yield basis to get a little more aggressive. And I think that's what the market wanted to hear that Powell said on December 13th. That, oh, you know, we don't want conditions to overly, you know. And that so the market rushed ahead of itself and it was able to sustain itself with that. So, and it wasn't just a holiday market. It had more to it because, again, that was December 13th. So, again, the confusion that comes about, uh, and, they, and and Peter's right, they have to lay out some for themselves. They don't have to lay it out to me, but they have to be more consistent in the discussion. Otherwise, they're going to get this ebb and flow and ebb and flow and ebb and flow, and they're only, they are only adding to the volatility of the bond markets. And if the bond markets get too volatile because that's just the way the 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 uh the investors and traders are interpreting it they're going to undermine themselves anyway we saw it well that'll take us back to the famous taper tantrum 
Now that was the market just reacted. But if you keep wishing, you know, and then you then you're decrying at the same time the amount of volatility. Well, you can't have it both ways. And the more volatile, you'll chase potential investors that you need to sell all the debt that the treasury is trying to unload. So you're working at cross purposes. You know, I, I think the democratization, and I use that term very facetiously, that was instilled by Yellen. Uh, Bernanke started, but Yellen really, I guess, was the progenitor of it. And then Powell has upped it because Powell is the first chair who had, uh, after every meeting, is a press conference. That was, you know, we had him quarterly. I don't think Greenspan, I, I don't even, you know, so you didn't even know every Fred president's name. Now everybody knows every, you know, yeah, hell, you know, a kindergartner could pass the test if they watch uh, enough TV. So they're out there and, and they work across purposes. And I think it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't help the market. It's great for traders. You know, when people hear that, oh, it's good, you know, Wall Street's getting hurt. No, that's not that's not the point of it. Yeah, some will, but for traders, this is a godsend. This is a godsend. So uh, I, I think that they, and, there's, and again, now we're in a political year. We haven't even discussed that yet. And is the Fed political? Yeah, I know that somebody put out a, an article last week on Business Insider. I read it saying the Fed's not political. The Fed is historically political, historically political. You know, going back to the 1920s, right? It, it's Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon. Uh, the Probably the least political was, was Jimmy Carter, who basically agreed to unleash uh, Volcker, although Volcker held off in 1980 and admitted that it was a mistake because he actually pulled back from what he had started in October of 1979. So. The Fed is inherently political. You Again, you have four or five governors, and the governors are more powerful than the presidents because they vote on certain things that the presidents don't vote on, which is interest on reserves, which I, to me is a critical factor. And, and uh, they don't have to vote on the discount window effects. So there's things in here that give the governor, and the governors are appointed, the Biden administration, and that, I'm not besmirching the Biden, everybody, every administration has their appointees. Every every administration, but we have four labor economists that were appointed, and I guarantee you that they were vetted by Yellen and uh, Raynard. So I, I mean, again, more of the things, more of these bumps that we need to get through. Do you, do you think, Peter, that the Fed will be political this year in, in their actions? Uh, I think Jay Powell is going to do his best not to be. Uh, you know, on one hand, he he doesn't feel any allegiance to Biden. Biden didn't want him uh, reappointed. He wanted Brainerd. Um, so Biden doesn't feel anything for, I'm sorry, Powell doesn't feel anything for Biden. And on the other hand, uh, there's no love lost between Trump and Powell, assuming Trump gets the nominee. Uh, Trump beat him up every day. Uh, Trump, who loved zero interest rates and even loved even more the idea of negative interest rates that Europe was experiencing. So that's not to say that Fed members, other than Powell, will definitely uh, feel political. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it, it's only human nature to have it 
sort of flow through your 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 mindset and how this may affect things. Uh, but I think big picture with Powell, with his term ending in early 2026, he's focused on himself and his own legacy. And I think at least right now with the economy still hanging in and the labor, um, the unemployment rate still relatively low, he wants to be known as the, the man who fought inflation, not the one who stoked it, even though he did, <laughs> but the one who, who fought it and, and won that battle. And I think yeah. that that is going to be uh, his main thing rather than who is going to be president because this is Powell's last gig. This is it. He's going off into the sunset, as I said, and uh, after after next year, 2025. And um, that's what I think he, he's going to be most focused on, which means that maybe he will have to control his members that are going to be more politically oriented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I, that would be my point is. And so the votes become critical. You know, right. are we going to get neg- are we going to get dissenting votes? Or if there's no dissent, Powell has been a very good uh, uh, crafter of of getting consensus because every vote has been in difficult times has been unanimous. I'm waiting to see if we get a a break with the unanimity and what's the discussion around that. Uh, Because to me, it won't be one uh, that breaks. There'll be, I think there's a a couple, as the way I read this, there's a few on each side. And that, and that, to me, defines why we've gotten these, uh, we've gotten uh, dovish rate increases and hawkish pauses. But and I think that, and coupled with, does the unemployment uh, rate, for whatever good it's worth, because uh, you see these data points, but does unemployment go under 4%, which becomes a headline? So, you know, I'm waiting to see what gets tested here. You know, we haven't we haven't seen a four handle on unemployment in quite a while. But if we're going into an election, it's that's not a headline you want. Unemplo- unemployment increases. Well, you know, for whatever reasons, because we'll go we'll dig deep and to see why, you know, uh, is there a rise in the participation rates? Are hours uh, dropping? There'll be a lot to go with it, but the headline is what they, the White House would love to avoid at all costs. It, it will not, because his economic polling numbers aren't good with 3.7%. And and that's a that's a mystery, you know, is to quote Churchill, mystery, an enigma wrapped inside of a riddle wrapped inside a mystery or something like that. So, uh, because it just, why aren't those polling numbers better? So the last thing they want is a rise in employment, a rise in unemployment to shift that three to a four, just like with the inflation, you know, they were, they're desperate to get that PCE down into the twos. And uh, Peter on, on the U S debt situation, given the challenges there and the renewal of debt uh, also uh, unsustainable unfunded, liabilities do, do you see the potential for aggressive yield curve control if so when and h- how does the US dollar play out this year R- related question uh i i think powell is going to try to avoid any sort of yield curve control um as long as he sees the chair i mean what we've seen is it's a complete trap uh 
well, I mean, we obviously know the experience of Japan, but just look at Australia when they implemented it, uh, and 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 they realized it was a bad idea, and the second they get at it, they got out of it. We saw a big spike in short-term interest rates out to the point at which they were conducting yield curve control. So while theoretically uh, it sounds okay, let's just cap long-term interest rates and allow the government to finance itself at a low rate. Uh, when you are such a big part of the bond market and the bond market is as big as it is, it's really hard to do. I mean, the amount of treasuries that the Fed would have to buy to conduct yield curve control is just astonishing. And, and when would they ever get a chance of getting out of it? So mm. uh, I don't think that that is really in, in their thought process at all. You know, they're, they're, in their mindset is if they just cut interest rates to an extent, well, that'll calm the entire yield curve. The problem they'll potentially run into, which I think they will, is that they'll cut short-term interest rates, but long-term interest rates are either going to stay elevated or move even higher, which mm -hmm. I think is what is going to happen. I think mm -hmm. there are a lot of huge potential trade-offs this year, and that I don't think um, you know investors are thinking through. Right now, they're thinking, okay, everything's fine, inflation's slowing, Fed's going to cut, uh, everything's going to be fine, but um, there's some big trade-offs here. Is the trade-off of, as I mentioned, cutting short-term interest rates, seeing long-term interest rates rise. Uh, the Fed only cutting three times this year. Well, that's because maybe inflation remains sticky and um, growth hangs in. But if inflation, but if Fed's only cutting three times, and the bond market needs to readjust to that. The Fed cuts six times. Maybe we get into the situation that I mentioned that the unemployment rate starts heading worth a four percent. Well, do we want that? Uh, do we want six cuts if it means that the unemployment rate is going to four and a half percent? And what happens if the Fed start, starts to cut six times? Well, what does a dollar do? Well, the dollar has really proven itself to be just a trading instrument off where monetary policy is. The Fed was aggressive with monetary policy. The dollar rallied. The Fed backed off from its aggressive, aggressiveness. The dollar sold off. So um, there are a lot of like, Sort of pick your poisons here that uh, I, I see unfolding here, and and you know maybe we could thread some needles here and the things will be okay. But um, there there is no free lunch. Well, there's no free lunch ever, but we definitely had a free lunch when inflation was low. That gave the the Fed and other central banks the opportunity to do whatever they want. But now I see less of free lunches, or I should say more expensive lunches. Yeah. Exactly. And your, your thoughts, Ira, for yeah, YCC? Yeah. You know, I, I think Peter's points, and I've known him for a while, and yield curve control, of course, is right. But if I was going to go down that road, to me, I, I would I would do yield curve control two years and down because the Treasury has a problem. Because Janet Yellen has front-loaded the debt structure with T-bills. Well, and Peter made a point before, that he expects the, the just from a trading standpoint that the that the short end, shorter end to outperform the longer end, meaning the curve is going to steepen as we go into right now. It's it has been on that terror because everybody got on to because the question becomes, and I ask myself this every day: Do I want to extend my duration? And I know that there's some very powerful and what people I respect. We talk about, you know, buying the longer end, 
I don't see it. And, and my, my, uh, the guy who handles my bonds and, and equities on a personal basis, he called, we had this discussion last week after I did the Faber podcast, Richard. And when Mark Faber asked that same question, do you want, Ira, will you buy 10 years for 4%? And, and I said, no, and because there are certain things, there's, to me, there's just not. So my bond guy, Marty Block, who is really very conservative, always errs on the side, but with a good eye, he's got a really good eye. And it, well, he worked for me for a number of years. So we have a long same relationship, but he called me, he said, you know, I thought about that. And, and in advising you, I would say, well, if you bought a 4% tenure, three, Three things can happen, right? It can do nothing. It could go down in value. Or if things fall apart, it'll rise in value. He's, and he said two of those three things. I said, oh, it's kind of like Woody Hayes throwing a pass. He says, what does that mean? Because he's a little bit younger than me. I said, well, Ohio State always played three yards in a cloud of dust. And Woody Hayes' view on the pass was three things can happen. And two of them are bad. They can be either incomplete or intercepted. And so one out of three, no, I'm, I'll, I'll go with the run. So I guess we're kind of in that environment right now where I don't want to touch the tenure because first of all, the, the politics of the tenure are bad because you're into then the budget and the deficit and the politics of, I don't want that. So to me, there's not much to be gained. If, I'm, if the world starts to fall apart, which is what the longer, anybody buying the long end at this time is really discussing, I'll do better in a two year anyway. So I, I may just make so I, I and, and the only problem for the two year is the massive amount of T-bills that the U.S. Treasury has issued. And I think it's been a gigantic mistake uh, to, to front load all that. But you're now stuck in that situation. So if the Fed was going to work with the Treasury, which is historically that's, you know, Operation Twist. And of course the Accord of 46 to 51 was was the Treasury and the Fed working together to, to solve an issue of too much debt. But there we had more long-term, but here you're on the short-term. And and if you were, if they did it right, they should let the curve steepen. I, I have a chart in front of me right now. Over 25 years, the range of the two-year and and this was only made a year ago. The low was 110 basis points. Interestingly, meaning inverted, uh, the day before uh, Silicon Valley Bank went under, believe it or not. So there, there's, and, uh, and the high was over the last 25 years, 293, almost 294, made right between QE1 and QE2 when the market thought that the first QE would be very inflationary and they put a lot of pressure on the long end of the curve. Um, and then they that corrected even after QE2 because people who thought, oh, this is really going to run crazy, the bond shorts got killed. Uh, so we have, so I would, if they're going to do it because they front loaded the short end, do the yield curve control two years and lower, and you might get what you want. But I'm not in favor of yield. I, you know, I, I think if you let markets function, they'll actually find their way to the levels that you, that the authorities want anyway. They just have to be willing to let them work. Mm -hmm. 
Any thoughts, um, Peter, on equities for this year, uh, where they're going for 2024? So with equities, you know, you have a very bifurcated storyline with uh, the big cap tech stocks and everything else. Uh, you look at 2023 up until call it November or late October, it was just the big cap tech that did well and nothing else did. And then there was some catch up. Uh, I think it's uh, it's really tricky. Uh, I, I expect uh, the economy continue to slow in 2024, which means earnings are going to continue to slow. And uh, the parts of the market that are pretty overvalued, and I'm not sure if they're going to be able to hold up in uh, a slowing uh, earnings environment. Then you have other parts of the market, value type stuff that remains cheap that, um, and I being long them and talking my book, uh, I, I hope that they, they outperform. Uh, I'm still pretty bullish on certain areas of the equity market, particularly energy stocks, precious metals, and uranium. And uh, while the beginning of the year has been god-awful for uh, Hong Kong stocks and Chinese stocks that trade there, uh, I think that uh, we're seeing the final capitulation and puke up of, uh, uh, of the Hang Seng in particular. And that um, that is going to way outperform the S&P 500 this year. So I just think that, you know, in the context of what I talked about, about uh, being in um, sort of this new rate environment for longer, uh, even though it may be lower than where we are today, that um, just the investing playbook just is is has to be different. It can't be just pile into everything that has worked and assume that it's just going to continue to work. Uh, I, I think it's a changed environment. We have to acknowledge that. Uh, now, where the S&P trades at the end of the year, I have no idea. Uh, I do think if I were to make a call that we're in a big picture trading range, uh, we established the highs in January 2022 were around 4,800, which is what we're just shy of. And the lows were October 2022, about 3,600 in the S&P. And I think until proven otherwise, we're going to remain in that big picture trading range. But with potential outperformance and other things, as I stated. Interesting. And your thoughts, Sarah? Yeah, I'm... Uh, well, listen, Peter's a far better stock picker than I... And I am, and he because his his granular approach to many things. Plus, which makes his voice so strong is because he he does combine them both. So he'll look at those. I'm still looking at various areas of the world. You know, I I will applaud Peter and I like I did with Bobber last year. We had Japan, I think, very right. Maybe even earlier than maybe two years ago. Time yeah. starts to. Um, so those those have been great. Is now Japan has run pretty hard here. Uh, you know, and most of it is because as the yen is weakened since the start of the year, as and and the interest rate game is back on. So and the Japanese haven't done anything, but so the yen is we're today we're we're we hit almost one forty eight and a half. So it's probably down, or the dollar is up about six yen since the start of the year against the uh, Japanese yen. But these things are are still in play. Uh, yesterday, the, my favorite play in Europe, uh, Commerce Bank, got took a beating uh, because financials in Europe all all struggle. Um, I still like that. It's a, it's but again, it's not an index play. It's not it's a it's a play on a certain aspect that I see uh, favorably. You know, from Ken Griffin moving over there, and and I believe that if if the European Union 
and the ECB is held together and you get some type of, of fiscal harmonization and a real European banking system, that they will be in a very, very important place, especially as they move, as the ECB moves the EU to a broker dealer type bond system, which they don't have now, which the volatility, you know, it's not a, the volatility in the European bond markets on a daily hourly is huge. And you understand why the big American US based bond are, are moving to get over there. And if, if they enforce that, that you have to be domiciled, it's another reason why I like commerce uh, so much. And there were, again, there was talk again about Deutsche, Deutsche Bank and commerce merging again, and because the government, I think the German government owns about 25 to 30% of commerce bank because of all the uh, stimulus that they had and uh, bailouts they had to provide to her. Uh, so, I mean, things like that, I, I'm looking at the, the, the most intriguing market from an underpriced value, and you see it are the gold stocks and the, the precious metal stocks. I mean, gold went up and made new highs. We didn't get close across the board in some really good mining companies. Now, now they're not all good. As Mark Twain famously said, a gold mine is a hole in the ground with a layer at the top. So I think that, you know, they always get, and, and rightfully so. Um, so with that, if you think the metals really have a lot to them, you're going to have to dip your toes into the into the uh, precious metal stocks. And I'm not talking about the ET. I'm not talking about the uh, GLD. I'm talking about some gold mining stocks and, and do your homework and pick those that have low debt, are actually paying a decent dividend and have a history of paying a dividend. So you know, look, uh, and then, you know, I, Doomberg put out that really good piece on gold last week, which was very intriguing. But it doesn't make me want, you know, silver will go because silver is a precious metal, but everybody is still tainted with the taint, with the hunts of 79 and 80. But the silver has really underperformed. I mean, we're, uh, we're 88, 88 to one on the gold-silver ratio. But I, I believe that if you're in that camp, that platinum, which has performed terribly, because platinum is, is as much as an industrial metal for a lot of people because because of its use in catalytic converter. So when the auto industry is soft, platinum tends to go soft. But if you're looking for an alternative precious metal, if you think the Chinese, because everybody talks about how much the Chinese and Russians and the Indians and other countries are stockpiling gold. Well, there's more to precious metals than gold. And, I, and you know, when I look around, we're at probably one of the steepest discounts of platinum to gold. And I, I'm not, this is not a contrarian play. But if you think that storing precious metals or holding precious metals, even by the central banks, the Chinese, the Chinese used to uh, fabricate a lot of uh, platinum uh, pandas, they were called. Beautiful coins. So if you're in that market, platinum is, is an, if you, if that's the scenario, I would tell central banks they should they ought to be buying platinum just on a relative value basis. It's a it's a better buy. It hasn't happened. I'm not predicting that it's going to happen. But if you're in that mindset that precious metals are going to be a place to hide out to protect value, but you see how the precious metals, as Peter talked at the beginning of this, if you if you chart the gold to the two-year note, it's unbelievable how closely they are tied. So there are algorithms built to it. 
because it's moving so much in sync. Um, and then as soon as as soon as yields start to rise on the two year, somebody gets a little nervous and they start selling, especially the leverage positions in the gold. But those bleed into the uh, uh, into the gold stocks. So there's a lot on our plate. You know, if we come back in three or four months, we'll have a better picture of it. And I, but I'd like to, you know, I'd like to do that in another three or four months. We we come back and revisit some of these. But those are areas, and, I, and I'm still bullish agriculture. Because that's a changing, that is changing, and nothing can pull that back. You know, I, Brazil can grow more beans, and uh, Kansas can grow more. But weather conditions have to be right, and then of course you have to be able to transport it. Uh, so, a lot of a lot of things in motion here. I, I think we would agree, Peter, and I certainly agree on that. There are so many things in motion, but uh, there are certain things that I think still offer really good value on an individual stock picking basis. And I find them in the ag uh, mining. Uh, and not, you know, look at what uranium's done. You know, I, I we have to give it when we did the piece with uh, Goering and, uh, well, with uh, Rosenblatt, with Adam, dead right on target. You know, he was talking and Doomberg has been talking about uranium for a long time. Peter's, I know he's been bullish uranium. So it's been a good one. They're out there. You got to do your work though. They're not, nobody's dropping them. This is not, zero interest rates and I'm going to buy whatever I can because there's just no alternative. There are alternatives. Mm -hmm. Are you still bullish Peter in the ag and copper areas? Um, mostly. Uh, and I agree a hundred percent with Ira on the, on the precious metals miners. Uh, I, I want to preface this by saying mining gold mining is a really tough business. It's probably the worst business in the history of business uh, outside of the business of politics. So, uh, okay. and getting this stuff out of the ground is not easy. And then having to sell it at a price that you can't control is, is proven to be really difficult, particularly if you have mines in countries where governments are not very stable. So I understand from the investor standpoint, the disgust with owning gold miners relative to the physical, uh, particularly when you look at the last 24-year bull market in precious metals interrupted for sure by the bear market in 2013 that ended in sort of 2015. Uh, it's paid to own physical instead of the, the, the miners. And even, uh, you know, the day before this call, uh, Barrick gold had some disappointing, uh, cost news and they whacked all the gold stocks again. So I understand the frustration, but from where I see gold prices eventually going, uh, the, the money that, these miners are currently making for those that are producing uh, with very big profit margins that um, this is one of the most underloved. Uh, it is probably the most underloved, most attractive areas of the market that, that I find uh, now with respect to copper. Um, uh -oh. Uh -oh. Hi, Peter. Yeah, but uh, I'm back. Oh, yeah. Sorry, um, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, Go ahead. Doing it on my phone is not easy. Uh, you know, we're along Freeport, and uh, I'm pretty bullish on copper. But you know, copper, of course, has mm -hmm. more uh, industrial uses. But I just think overall the theme is just uh, years of underinvestment in a lot of different things, and that's going to lead to still stickier prices. Uh, now, copper is going to ebb and flow with 
uh, the supply demand imbalances, but also concerns about China growth and whatever. Uh, I think people, when they look at copper, need to start looking at what is going on in India. Uh, the amount of money that uh, the Indian government is spending on infrastructure, whether it's just building new highways and airports and expanding their electric grid, uh, the demand for commodities coming out of India is going to help mitigate any slowdown in the demand for commodities coming out of China. And I think that that needs to be part of uh, one's big picture analysis when looking at commodities. Um, you know, ag is very interesting in that the demand side for ag is pretty linear. You know, as long as the world's population grows, the demand for corn and wheat and soybeans and so on uh, is always a, a very steady uh, rate of increase. It's trying to figure out the supply side that is really the key determinant when investing in ag. And that certainly, because of the weather influences, uh, becomes uh, you know, more challenging. And basically, harvesting harvest being once a year, uh, a good harvest one year could be a bad harvest the next year, whereas opposed to building out a copper mine, it could take 10 years. And you can uh, more, more uh, accurately uh, try to model out longer-term supply-demand uh, calculations. Uh, so, and I still like in the commodity space, still like energy and uh, believing that, uh, you know, you, you have U.S. oil production, to use that as an example, since it's the biggest, at 13.3 million barrels a day, but rig counts continue to fall. And yes, the, the, the discrepancy has been because of the, the efficiencies in U.S. oil production, but you just wonder how long that can be sustained if rig counts continue to drop. Mm -hmm. And what about on emerging markets? Uh, do you, do you like uh, Brazil, Colombia, Indonesia, some, some of the emerging market areas? So I'm very bullish on emerging markets, uh, both emerging market bonds and in local currencies and also emerging market equities that have just really, um, underperformed the U.S. markets over the last 15 years. But I think, I'm hoping uh, that that changes, uh, particularly in Asia. Um, Argentina is extremely interesting with the, the new leader, libertarian leader. Uh, Brazil is very interesting as well. But um, I go back and forth on Lula on uh, what approach he's going to take. But uh, I do think from a monetary standpoint, Brazil really weathered the last couple of years much better than a lot of the developed countries, as did Mexico too. Uh, these are central banks that have been hardened by uh, inflation experiences, and they were very prudent with how they conducted monetary policy. So I like, in particular, the local currency bonds in Brazil and Mexico. You mentioned Indonesia, them as well. Uh, and even China and Malaysia um, and other uh, uh, emerging market uh, bonds. Uh, and I, I, you know, going back to uh, you know Hong Kong and China, and uh, I've been bullish on Indian stocks who've been long. Uh, in other Asian markets like Vietnam, uh, Japan's not obviously emerging market, but Ira and I have been on that theme. So I guess mm -hmm. I can call it international, whether it's emerging market or developed, yeah. that uh, that I do find um, attractive relative to uh, the S&P 500, again, which uh, is still expensive because of those big names, while there is value to be had elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Great insight. And your thoughts, Ira? Um, I I still like the emerging, I think the emerging market world has emerged in ways, and China, the way it's playing the development of the global South against Europe and the United States has been very effective. Um, 
their debt structure is is different than when they used to get into trouble. In fact, I would probably argue that the United States more resembles what used to go on. Uh, <coughs> not quite that bad, but yeah. but in that arena, because those central banks, as Peter points out, the Mexican central bank has been extremely responsible. The Brazilian central bank, extreme. I would probably argue they squeeze too much, but they they did not want their currencies, you know, uh, dropping against the dollar because the you know in, in a dramatic fashion because there's 15 trillion of dollar denominated debt outside the United States. When the dollar goes higher, that becomes a burden for anybody who has to pay the interest on that debt in dollars because you have to then earn more dollars. So. A lot of that is not fixed debt. It's you know it's floating, and so it 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 does start to weigh on them. So they they for unlike in the eighties, seventies, eighties, and even now, they went out and got ahead of the curve, and it enabled them to borrow more money in their domestic market in their domestic currency, which is a huge advantage because then they're not caught in that trap, uh, almost like the Triffin dilemma, and with. Uh, What's his name? Robert Mendel. I mean, they talked about this when all this was taking place back in the 70s and 80s. So we, we've been there and look at there, as Peter talks about India. India, of course, has been a story waiting to happen. Uh, it takes its time. Uh, they get good stuff and then they backslide. Uh, so there are a lot of people are, are certainly hoping for that. But if they have any type of growth, in middle class, that'll, that changes the entire world. The, the whole food structure of the world changes. And, and we've seen that. The, the food curve, when, when prices are like here, so we broke, we broke down in the wheat markets. Where do we break to? Five and a half, six dollars. That used to be very bullish markets. Now it's a break down there, and that's where it holds. So that's a, the, the food curve has has moved upward dramatically. Soybeans, you know, when soybeans break now, they go down to 1220, 1250. Yes, the speculators who are who may be long are but that whole dynamic has changed because there's a lot more middle class people in the world eating middle class diets. And good, bad or indifferent, um, we've yet to really figure that out. You know, it all depends whether you eat at McDonald's or you eat at uh, what Chipotle? I, I don't know, uh, but it, it does change. So, I, I'm everything that Peter talks about. I am. I see it. I may not be as wildly bullish until I see more. I need to see what starts to really develop here in the United States. If I'm right on the thesis of my thesis of how political I expect the Fed to be in its own right, and again, the vote is going to become very, very critical. To me. And can Powell hold his? the unanimity of, of all the votes as he has. And I would, you know, in England, what do we see? 6-3 was the last vote. So you see, great. And that tells me more about a country's monetary policy. When you start to see dissension, I think that's really, really healthy. I, I don't, I don't, there's no way that, well, there's 19 people and there are 12 voters. There's no way that 12 people sh should be so unanimous. You know, it's tough enough on a jury. It's tough. And yet you're, you're subject to all this data. It was nice listening to Waller yesterday because coming out of St. Louis, 
now he's a governor, of course, but and coming out of the St. Louis Fed, the, uh, and I think that of all the uh, the banks, the St. Louis Fed has always done great research. Uh, and he was citing the the Freds uh, to look at the Fred data, you know, on this, that, and the other. So that's interesting because each each regional bank has their own research department that comes up with, you know, the Atlanta now is different than uh, the Cleveland trend. You know, everybody is. So how can they vote the same? Agreed. Yeah, exactly. Just uh, coming to a close here, uh, your final thoughts, Peter, and also how, how can our listeners and viewers learn more about your work? Final thoughts. Um, I, I, I think it's, uh, it, it's the road is not smooth. And um, the, the, all these moving parts that we talked about, uh, you're constantly going to have to retest your thesis. Uh, I think that um, there, there is no easy way getting through uh, a rate shock that we saw. And I consider a vertical rise in interest rates a rate shock that still is going to take time to work its way through the global economy. And while maybe we'll get some relief with some central bank rate cuts, uh, I don't know whether it's going to be enough. Now, big picture, it's healthy to have interest rates that are above the rate of inflation. So over time, this will be a good thing. Shrinking uh, central bank balance sheets is a good thing. But there is a, a withdrawal, withdrawal period of easy money that uh, I still think has uh, time to play out. Uh, in terms of looking for me uh, at Bleakly, they can check out our website, bleakly.com. And if they're interested in reading my daily missives, I've shifted to Substack. So they can go to peterbookvar.substack.com. Great. Thanks, Peter and Naira. Final Just, thoughts and yeah. Yeah, I don't. I, you know, I'm pretty well talked out on. And my thoughts are, and and we haven't again. Peter and I like to talk about Europe, but we've kind of left Europe alone because Europe has also is saddled with political problems, and you see, and you see it this week because here's Lagarde, and she's got the people on her right, meaning hawks. And they're out, they were out in full force for the last five days between Nagel and uh, Holtzman and, and even uh, Klaus Notch. So she's got a real tough situation to deal with there. And she doesn't have the benefit of a harmonized fiscal uh, system or a really a centralized banking structure. So she's got real, real problems and she's got domestic politics that are really starting to boil. Uh, Germany is no is no picnic right now. Uh, Olaf Scholz is under a tremendous amount of heat and he's got a lot of vulnerabilities. And, and don't think that Mr. Putin doesn't know those vulnerabilities because Mr. Putin has Gerhard Schroeder on his payroll who knows those vulnerabilities as well as anybody. So it's not gonna be an easy year in Europe uh and with everything else and then of course you know you have u.s politics that are certainly on the boil too so lots of stuff going on here uh, and 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 europe only becomes an issue because of where does germany go if the politics in germany continue to erode meaning erode that you have a rise more of the afd and 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 the right 
because there's going to be there's they're expected to win outright win for regional elections. That's going to raise the temperature even more because if the Germans are unhappy, it always comes down to how far will will they put a lot of pressure on the EU that the EU won't you know can they break the EU you know again. We don't have fiscal harmonization. We don't have central banking. There are many fissures that can be exploited. These, these will be interesting. And, uh, and you can find me really mostly now. Uh, I, I'm not even blogging because just for 14 years, it was a, a lot and I, and I still enjoy it. But whatever I want to say, I can say in these, in these podcasts and I get out there and thank you for, your, for providing the platform and um, and I, yeah, it's been great discussions. Yeah, thank you so much, Peter and Ira. Thank you for the, thanks, thanks, Peter. Thanks, Richard. Thank you, Ira. Yeah. Oh yeah, pleasure. Thank you for accommodating me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Great. Take care, Peter. guys. The FRA Roundtable Insight Show is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the show each involve their own unique risk factors which are not discussed on the show. Any discussions among the panel participants or responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the panel participants and do not take into consideration the listener's suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Please be advised that you invest or speculate at your own risk.